Welcome to Behind the Curtain, LA Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. In this podcast, the first of an Exploring the Operatic Canon series, Maestro James Conlon discusses one of opera lovers' favorite parts of the canon, the operas of the 19th and 20th centuries. From Verdi to Stravinsky, Maestro Conlon shares his wisdom and insight. This is James Conlon. The 19th century globally is often referred to as the Romantic century. Romantic is a big word and it has uh, 55 definitions, some of which contradict each other. But we understand it to generally mean uh, works of literature or art or or music that have great emotions and emphasize emotionality as a centerpiece. Now, the 19th century started to move into a clearer definition of the national or emerging nations, cultures, languages. We have a clearer distinction. There is Italian opera. There is German opera. There is French opera. There is Russian opera. And each one of them in some way are going to relate to their cultural background. Now, it's important to emphasize that at the beginning of the 19th century, there was no Italian nation. It was a collection of city-states. There was no not no Germany the way we know Germany as well. There were a lot of dukes and uh, lords and uh, various kings that eventually were going to become a nation, but not until 18, 1870s, the Italians for the first time in the 1860s. France was more of a nation. Was united under a king, so there's a clearer distinction there. Russia, there was a czar, uh, so that's all going to gradually emerge. And as it does, opera is going to take on certain characteristics in each country. That's going to be a little bit different. One of the big differences is that after the French Revolution, slowly, 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 the kings and queens, royalty, and aristocracy start to recede in importance over the course of maybe a hundred years or so, and commercial interests come about. There are now theaters where you run a theater and you hope to make money or you hope not to run out of money. And so operas had to be produced that would appeal to a public because they wanted the public to buy tickets and come to the opera. So tastes were sometimes now being dictated, not so much what a king or a duke or prince or princess liked. It's now going to be dictated about what is the general public like? So we started getting very distinct lines. One of those lines, the Italian line, let's start with that, because I think it's important to understand that opera is an Italian invention, as is much of classical music in one form or the other. Notation, the instruments, the terminology, it all came out of Italy and moved northward. So even Mozart, who is Austrian, was thoroughly schooled in Italian. He spoke Italian fluently. He wrote his operas, many of his operas in Italian. Um, the singers had Italian style of singing. That had drifted north, and so that's had its influence on German and the French operas world as well. But Italian opera was characterized in the first part of the 19th century as a period of bel canto. What is bel canto? Bel comes from bello or bella, which means beautiful, and canto means singing. And the idea was that beautiful singing was the reason you went to an opera. Operas were produced sometimes with scanty stories with 
really not very important, just so that each of the uh, leading singers, female singers who were called sopranos, that's the top highest voice. And there were lower voices, sometimes called contralto and alto, later on a mezzo-soprano. The men, there was the high voice, the tenor, then there was a baritone that was middle range, and then there was the bass who was lower range. So each of those vocal categories had to be satisfied, and the public wanted to hear the opera that was going to appeal to all of those voices. And you were supposed to show in the course of a bel canto opera that A, you had a beautiful voice. If you didn't, there was no justification for you being on stage. You had to show that you could sing very beautifully, lyrically, and sustain a melodic line in a way that was very pleasing to the ear. And then you were expected to sing other parts that were fast and fiery and uh, like virtuoso, showing off, as it were, high notes, fast roulades going up and down. So it was all in an evening. Presumably, if you went to an opera of Bel Canto, you're going to get all of it from most of the different vo vocal categories. Some of those operas were comic. They were referred to as opera buffa, buffa meaning funny in Italian. And some of them were more serious. There was a form called opera seria, which was uh, important in the 18th century, but became less important in the 19th century. But there was melodrama. A lot of these operas are melodramatic. And that is gradually in the course of the 19th century going to take over. Now, at the beginning of the century, you had the king of it all, uh, Giochino Rossini. Rossini, who wrote The Barber Seville, is the most famous opera. He wrote comic operas, and he took over the opera world with his very popular and beloved comic operas. And they're in the canon today because they are loved. And as he got older, he started writing melodramas, and then he wrote almost exclusively melodramas. And so uh, when he gets older and stops composing, the next generation, uh, which are the big names are Donizetti and Bellini, they are going to tend toward melodrama. Donizetti will write a few comedies, but not many. Melodrama is becoming more important. And by the time the king of them all, Giuseppe Verdi, is born in 1813, but in his 20s already writing melodramas, and he's going to transform the operatic form from this bel canto idea, which is a string of solos, duets, trios, choruses that is basically about pleasing the ear, he's going to turn them into drama. He's going to, he's still going to want to please the ear. He still wants you to hear melodies. He still wants to find ways to have the voice be featured, but he wants it all to be in the service of a dramatic idea. Gradually, he's going to transform the entire art form into its high point by the time he, he is 80 years old. And he's going to continue to write all of his life right up until his 80s. He's a major figure, but one must not forget Rossini. And one must not also forget that it's all a process. It all was a process. That was what was going on in the Italian city-states. Eventually, Italy gets unified in the latter part of the 19th century. But we can talk about Italian culture without talking about the Italian nation. And when it comes to that, we can talk about the German culture without talking about the German nation, because 
it's not the nation we know today. It was also um, a loose collection of uh, various dukedoms, kingdoms. Now, the German operatic music came a little more directly out of Mozart, and it has two lines. It has popular comic operas, which are sometimes called Spielopern. Spiel means to play. And sometimes they have music and spoken dialogue. And then sometimes they have all music, but they have a comic or an entertaining aspect. But the Germans get serious very quickly. And Beethoven, who was the most serious of the serious, wrote one opera. It's called Fidelio, but it makes a big, big impression on all of the German composers. Now, emerging out of these early entertaining operas comes Richard Wagner, and he is the giant of the 19th century, not just to German culture, but to all culture, because he had an effect on all the arts, music, poetry, drama, theater, politics, everything. Now, he was a very controversial uh, individual in his lifetime and has remained controversial to this day. Now, he's going to revolutionize German music making with his theories of theater and the relationship between the spoken or the sung word, music and poetry. And he's going to leave us 10 operas, which we consider part of the so-called canon. They are regularly performed. And they had some effect on Giuseppe Verdi, but they had a bigger effect in France and in the Italians following Verdi. So now we're starting to get uh, an interplay of European influences one on the other. He is a giant. You can't get around him. You may not like him, but you can't get around him. He was there and he's left his mark. As the 19th century is coming to a close, we're going to be very influenced by Richard Strauss, and that's take, going to take us into the 20th century. In Italy, there was a movement called Verismo. Verismo comes from a Latin word, vero, meaning truth. And this was uh, a movement, started as a literary movement. It was going to write operas about not kings and queens and czars and popes and generals and uh, mythological figures, Roman emperors. It's going to write stories about everyday life and everyday people. It's going to be first popularized by Pietro Mascagni and then Leon Cavallo, and then it's going to be followed by Puccini. Now, Puccini partially subscribed to the same theory. He's going to be the next genius in the line, but he's going to connect us into the 20th century. But in a certain way, he is the end of the Italian melodrama. He's going to take it from where Verdi leaves it, and he is going to live until the early 1920s, and by the time he writes his last work, which is called Turndot, it's going to make it very hard to write melodrama after him because he did it so well, so completely, so theatrically, that uh, it was hard to compete with. So we see the romantic, so-called romantic 
century uh, in Italy and Germany going parallel to each other. Uh, Russia has a slightly different schedule because they had, of course, taken the Italian opera into St. Petersburg in the late 18th century. And at first, the production of operas was quasi-Italian still. But in the middle of the century, you're going to get some pretty important revolutionary ideas and new operas of Russian composers who want to write Russian operas about Russian themes and are going to walk away from the dogma and convention of Italian opera. And you're going to get uh, amazing characters like Modest Mussorgsky, like Nikolai Rybsky-Korsakov. They are going to make a great impression about Russian opera. And that's going to take it into a very different neighborhood. The French started out as Italians, but after the revolution, no more aristocracy and it becomes commercial theater. It moved into two forms. One was called Grand Opera. Uh, Those were great, great productions with extravagant scenery, usually historical uh, subjects. And then there was the so-called Opera Comique, comic opera, but not so much that it was all comic. It was just a little more entertaining. And it was characterized by an alternation of music with dialogue. And you're going to have these two strains growing side by side, mainly in Paris. You're going to have those same two strains in Germany with the operetta. Operetta actually literally means little opera. And this became very popular in Vienna, especially uh, the most famous work is by Johann Strauss called Die Fledermaus, but there were many others. And this is a form that has Uh, Like the old German spiel opera, this has dialogue and and singing, dialogue and singing, dialogue and singing. The Italians never had that. It was always singing and was split up into uh, a form of called recitativo, that's reciting, where the word is more important than the melody, but it's still sung. And so that makes another further distinction. So what happens now? We're at the end of the 19th century. We have a choice. If you are a a person who has a interest in opera, you can like or prefer any one of these national operatic traits. And you can say, I like French opera. That's what I like. Or I like German opera. Uh, Or you can like it all. Because by the end of the 19th century, opera was being produced first in the capitals of Europe and then gradually elsewhere. The beginning, it was all about a new opera. That's all that was interesting to anybody. We wanted to hear the latest opera. And then a year or two after it was premiered, uh, it was replaced by another new opera by a popular composer, and then another new opera. But as time went on and a gradual awareness develops, you know there are things that were written in the past that are very valuable, very beautiful, very interesting. We should bring them back. And that's how the idea of canon and repertory got started. It starts a long time ago, but it develops to the point where an opera house um, is a place you go to where you know that you can hear many of those works by Mozart, Verdi, Wagner, uh, Bizet, Mussorgsky, uh, whomever you like, written in the past. Now, sometimes people criticize that and say, well, that's all about the past. It's like a museum. But, uh, you know, museums have a purpose. There is a value to old things and there's a value to new things. And we try to balance that in the opera house today. Let's talk about the 20th century now. Uh, So romanticism is disappearing. And one of the reasons for that is that 
it's a pretty catastrophic century. Europe and America eventually, and the Far East, torn by what we call world wars, two of them. We have just experienced a pandemic. There were significant pandemics 100 years ago. It was a century that saw economic depressions, uh, political turmoil. It was full of societal problems. Opera couldn't always just move on its merry way. So a lot of operas became much more serious, much more reality-based, and sometimes even abrasive. Now, the Germans are going to lead the way in this um, through the, uh, the beginnings with Richard Strauss, and they are going to have great names of, of composers that are not regularly performed, like Arnold Schoenberg was a great and important composer, but his opera, his great operas are not performed very often uh, because they're difficult for the public. Alban Berg wrote two operas. Both of them are masterworks, Wozzeck and Lulu. Uh, they're going to take a very sharp look at uh, not kings and queens, but the oppressed worker, the lower classes, so-called lower classes, and what they have to suffer. Now, Richard Strauss is going to start that with his work, Salome and Electra. And although he's taking Greek antiquity and a biblical source for Salome, he's going to show it in a very 20th century context. Now, some of the composers who, for me, are very significant, but were taken off the radar of the world in the German-speaking countries were composers who were suppressed by the Nazi regime between 1933 and 1945. Their works were banned. Many of them had to flee Germany for their lives. Uh, some, very unfortunately, were murdered in concentration camps. What was left was that their music did not outlive them. And therefore, it never became a part of what? The canon, the repertory. And I've devoted a lot of time in the last 30 years, and we at LA Opera uh, started a movement, and we call it Recovered Voices, and uh, try to emphasize the importance of works we do not know. And we do not know them, not because they're not good, but because they were suppressed by an authoritarian regime, and they had nobody to defend them after the Second World War. And so they've taken a long time to be brought into the public conscious. That's the, I would say, the first half of the 20th century. France is going to be a little bit different. It's going to have one large looming operatic work by Claude Debussy, which is called Pelias and Melisande. 
this is a uh, this is a desert island piece. It's it's in its class of itself, and it very deeply affected the next French composers, Maurice Ravel, Poulenc, the six French composers who were popular and avant-garde in the 1920s. Now, one composer who set out on his own in the early part of the century was Igor Stravinsky. He was Russian by birth and by culture, but he left the country and stayed out of the country after the revolution, and he became an international figure. And his music is hard to categorize, except that it's Stravinsky. Just like Pablo Picasso was from Catalonia, and okay, you can say, well, he had that culture, but he was Picasso because he had such an individual take on everything that it's all about him, his music, and who he is. So Stravinsky did not specialize at all in opera. In fact, he only wrote a few of them. But the operas he wrote were significant. Uh, Le Rossignol, which is called The Nightingale. Oedipus Rex, uh, which we've just worked on here, which is a work um, where he takes freely from the operatic tradition what he wants, and he throws out what he doesn't want, and he brings in all sorts of other things. One of his late works, The Rake's Progress, he wrote to be uh, what's called a neoclassic work. He took all the conventions of classical opera, going back to Mozart, but he wrote an opera that is so distinct that you're not going to mistake it for Mozart or Haydn. You, you know it's Stravinsky, and yet you can still recognize all of the roots. So these are all very special works. The melodrama faded from view very gradually during the 20th century, and it becomes high drama, sometimes drama with uh, social criticism. One of the great works of the 20th century operatic works is by Dmitry Shostakovich. That's called Lady Macbeth of Tensk. This is a massive work, which was so shocking and offensive to the Soviet regime that they basically admonished him, silenced him momentarily, and made him fearful of writing more operas afterwards. And yet that's a very important work in and of itself. What do we do in classical music? We preserve works of great value from the past, but that does not exclude us, nor should it, from writing works in the present. So we need contemporary creation to go right on. And very gradually, perhaps some of these new works will join that repertory in the sense that people will go back to them again. Now, we can't tell right now what those works are. We can experience them, but we're not going to know what's going to be played in 50 years or 100 years. Uh, impossible to predict. But uh, the important thing is that creation goes right on. So it's important that we commission new works, we perform new works. And uh, it's not so much about, well, does this get in, in, included now in the repertory or the canon? I don't think that's the point. The point is that uh, here's a new work, here's a composer who takes a certain slant, uh, first of all, on music, but also on a particular subject, presents this to the public. And it's all about, does it justify itself? Does the music and drama together make a compelling, coherent, dramatic experience in the theater. And that's what we are aiming to do. You've been listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. 
Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on Apple iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Remember to share with your friends on your favorite social media, and we'll see you at the opera.